This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. How goes your summer? Hope the weather being manufactured by the cabal is to your liking. Before we get to the main entree, allow me to direct you to the website, richardserrett.com. Let me spell the last name, S as in Simon, Y, because I love you, R-E-T-T, Richard Serrett. Dot com, where Albert Vinzel has posted some tasty little morsels and information bombs. Uh, for instance, uh, back in 2000, just before George W. Bush became president, the CIA published a 70-page report on what the world would be like in 2015. And now we're about halfway through the year, and it turns out that several of those predictions were right on the money. So on the slide carousel at richardserrett.com, you'll find a rundown of some of those predictions. And that was published in The Telegraph back in December of 2000. Uh, you'll also want to check out a story from the BBC Online reporting that life may have started on Mars before arriving on Earth. A major scientific conference has heard. New research res- uh, supports an idea that the red planet was a better place to kickstart biology billions of years ago than the early Earth was. And finally, a how-to guide to decoding the secret messages in your dreams, placed there supposedly by your very own spirit guides. Those are just a few of the must-read articles you'll find in the slide carousel atop of richardserrett.com. Another exhilarating read and well-researched is a brand new book from the man who previously published the groundbreaking The FBI War on Tupac Shakur and Black Leaders, John Potash is back with Drugs as Weapons Against Us, the CIA's murderous targeting of SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, Panthers, Hendricks, Lenin, Cobain, Tupac, and other activists. In the book, Potash reveals the U.S. intelligence has been the largest LSD trafficker in the world and that many of the uh, more famous assassinations in the United States were... uh, leaders targeted for assassination because they opposed the war, not just in Vietnam, but in a top opium-growing area. He also reveals that the CIA's MKUltra had a hit list of opposition leaders to dose with LSD and other drugs. Undercover agents supposedly dosed musicians, writers, and political activists, both in the U.S. and abroad. And get this, George Harrison's dentist according to Potash, gave him and John Lennon their first doses of LSD covertly. That's right, without their permission. And Jimi Hendrix's manager, once in Britain's MI6, reportedly admitted murdering Jimi. These are but a few of the startling revelations in Drugs as Weapons Against Us. And a great pleasure to welcome John Potash to The Conspiracy Show. John Potash, how are you? Good. Thanks for having me on, Rich. My pleasure. Drugs as Weapons Against Us. Who is the us in this equation? Well, most of the population, 99.9% of the population, I would say. Now, uh, you, you talk about the, um, the uh, Anglo-American oligarchy that is really behind uh, this 
uh, you know, flooding the United States, well, the Western world and, and beyond, really, mm. with, with uh, cheap drugs, addictive mm. narcotics. Um, where, I mean, it, it almost harkens back to uh, the opium wars uh, against China in the 19th century, where they were, uh, you know, the empire was waning, they were trying to gain access to the, the Chinese market, and so they flooded mainland China uh, with opium. Uh, in order to, I guess, you know, cause social unrest. Is that what's, is that what's going on? I mean, is there a parallel yeah. here? Yeah, I talk about uh, the opium wars in China in the first chapter of the book because it was the same uh, families that made so much money off of the uh, shipping of opium with the British East India Company and the American families, such as the Russells, that were part of that, and uh, the Russells were intermarried with the Pierponts of Julius Pierpont Morgan fame. And um, a number of the top families, the wealthiest families in the world right now, gained their fortunes either directly from the opium shipping during the opium wars or were beneficiaries of a lot of that wealth when uh, that was bequeathed to them when they graduated from some of the, um, the clubs of Ivy League schools, such as Skull and Bones or the Porcelain Club of, of Harvard because those clubs were started by the opium shipping families. So, and, I, and you're right about the Anglo-American uh, you know, you know, oligarchs, because they, these oligarchs had, uh, were incredibly bigoted against all other um, peoples that were you know, Jews, Catholics, um, immigrants, people of color, of course, that you know, that when they started this eugenics movement in the early 1900s, they they singled them out for sterilization, and um, for even worse than that, um, passing laws in the majority of the states. You know, that were they were very bigoted, and uh, really prejudiced against uh, poor people in general. But um, so that's why I say that 99.9% of us are really being targets of, of this group. Now, after the eugenics movement um, that was started in the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratories uh, after World War II, they started Operation MKUltra, where the CIA, which was a CIA operation in, in the same Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, you know, along with other offices of the CIA. But, um, and through that, that was the framework. MKUltra was the framework for using drugs as weapons against us. And, and experiment. And a lot of that, that, that technology or that, that, um, uh, that system of, of, you know, fracturing one's psyche, uh, mm -hmm. inducing a dissociative disorder, uh, that, that, that came to us th through, the, uh, through Operation Paperclip. That, that came from the Nazi scientists, right? Yeah, they, they first experimented with those kinds of... Um this kinds of operate, you know, this kinds of techniques. Yeah, in the concentration camps, you know, the Nazi scientists were using, were trying that. They were they were the first to experiment with psychedelics um, on concentration camp victims, and then um, Operation Paperclip, yeah, saved about 800 uh, Nazi scientists. Another operation, Operation Sunshine, saved um, you know estimated between five and ten thousand Nazi agents that they sent to uh, Latin America. Who and in Latin America, those Nazi agents set up the uh, cocaine trafficking networks, and unseated democratically elected leaders in various Latin American countries, in line with the cocaine lords, um, and set up dictatorships in a number of those countries. So, 
that's you know uh, another part of what was going on with the CIA operations uh, on, you know, on behalf of the oligarchs. And when you say saved these Nazis, uh, literally, because many of them uh, would mm-hmm. have been at the end of the hangman's noose uh, after Nuremberg. Exactly. Or should yeah. have been. At sh- or should have, should been. have been. Should have been right. And I quote um, one of the Nuremberg prosecutors who said, sadly enough, that the uh, Nuremberg trials were, were somewhat of a sham trial. They let some of these Nazis, like the IG Farben representatives, IG Farben had run Auschwitz. Um, they were a huge chemical corporation that was intertwined with the Rockefeller interests at one point. But um, they say they allowed them to go free and just go through their files and just shred their files so they wouldn't, you know, be prosecuted. So they couldn't be prosecuted. So some of them, you know, got uh, very short terms and then were let go and then, you know, landed in top board positions in, in other countries. So, um, yeah, sadly enough, they, they uh, prosecuted very few people in Nuremberg, and they actually saved loads of people. I mean, you know, for example, I talk about Klaus Butcher of Leon Barbie, because in Bolivia he uh, helped operate, you know, he helped capture Che Guevara and killed Che Guevara. John Potish, uh, my guest, author of Drugs as Weapons Against Us, the CIA's murderous targeting of SDS, Panthers, Hendricks, Lenin, Cobain, Tupac, and other activists. Uh, right now, we're talking about uh, how uh, drugs were used as part of MK Ultra, and explain how that works in in terms of, of um, like the use of drugs in order to create, for example, a Manchurian candidate. Well, well, that's that was one sub operation that I don't talk a lot about because it's more controversial. I do show how they did um, use drugs like scopolamine, tuanols, and secondols, a number of different psychohypnotic drugs to induce hypnosis and to, um, and, you know, help when they, and find people that are susceptible to hypnosis. Like, um, for example, a Harvard-trained psychiatrist uh, studied Sirhan Sirhan for six hours um, and, and decided that Sirhan Sirhan was actually hypnotized and when and was under hypnosis when he you know supposedly fired their shots at at uh, Robert F Kennedy. It was rohypnol so, in that big urn of coffee, wasn't it? Well, um, yeah, I don't know. Rohypnol could have been used too. Um, rohypnol was actually used on Kurt Cobain, hmm. uh, believe it or not. It was uh, Courtney Love's prescription, and uh, he, he was induced. You know, he went into a coma on rohypnol. And um, it's you know they're roofies that you forget what happened you know beforehand when you when you uh, take them, and so it's it's actually believed that Courtney Love put them in uh, in Kurt Cobain's drink. Now the other, what you're talking about though is it goes even further, and I show the evidence that believe it or not, Courtney Love uh, was going to counseling at the age of three years old, according to you know biographies of her. And even her uh, own biological mother says she sent her to a counseling at that early age. And, um, you know, as a counselor myself, I've never seen a three-year-old that you, you, you really can't counsel three-year-old. No, no. I mean, so, their, their um, minds aren't even fully developed. For, they're far from it. I mean, not until they're right. teenagers. Right. And so here she is going to counseling at three. She tells her, and now her biological father lost custody of her because uh, um, her biological mother's parents were ex- extremely wealthy and actually paid off the uh, biological father's uh, lawyer to throw the case for custody. And the biological mother, a woman named Linda Carroll, was an adopted uh, daughter of these wealthy parents. And um, 
Linda Carroll said she was sexually abused at a very early age by her her adopted father Jack Reesey, and um, which is another she, which is another element of of MK Ultra, and that's you know exactly, trauma, mass yeah, trauma. Exactly, and so so here you know here's um, Courtney Love going to counseling at an early age, and she tells her biological father you know later when her, her she appealed to her father to get her out of a detention center that she was in at 13 years old. She said, my, my counselors sexually abused me from early on, and they also gave me two and alls and second alls. And I show how they were used by MKUltra, two and alls and second alls, to develop, um, you know, these hypnotizable and uh, deviant, you know, women. And I show the uh, women's testimony in federal hearings um, during the uh, Clinton years. These two women under a counselor who said, she got called by 40 other counselors within a week of her signing up to, to give federal testimony about how she is counseling a number of women that were developed into dissociative states at an early age and then used by the CIA as prostitutes and assassins. And so these women uh, talked, they named the, the MKUltra director, Sidney Gottlieb, they named a high-level scientist, John Gittinger, and s- several other MKUltra scientists who, who tortured them an early age to cause that dissociative state. And I show the evidence that, believe it or not, Courtney Love that was developed that way, and that's why her biological father told me she was traveling with a CIA agent at the age of 17 years old for at least two or three weeks and, and distributing uh, LSD all over the uh, London music scene and then doing the same in um, Portland and Los Angeles, the same way MKUltra agents were distributing LSD all over the London music scene in 1965, according to um, Ernest Hemingway's longtime editor, A.E. Hotchner, in his book about the Rolling Stones. I, I want to I uh, uh, dial back to the, uh, the 60s, mm-hmm. and, we'll, and we'll come back to, uh, to Cobain and, and other sort of uh, sure. musicians and activists. All right, John, I, I have to cut in here. Uh, let's uh, take a quick timeout. We'll come back and continue to discuss how the CIA uses drugs against us. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. John Potash is with us. Um, you mentioned the 1960s and um, mm-hmm. um, the British invasion, which is kind of a curious name. Uh, it, it's, it, it really was, in many ways, an invasion, though, wasn't it? It wasn't just, you know, Herman's Hermits and, and uh, uh, a lot of these seemingly innocuous, you know, British bands from yeah. from the, the Mercy landing on U.S. shores. It was far more nefarious. It was an invasion, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, I don't know what to make of the British invasion, but I do know what to make of this uh, Robert Lashbrook, the CIA agent, going to London, according to you know I. E. Hotchner, and and uh, having the assignment as part of CIMK Ultra's operations. To get acid in as many musicians' hands as possible. Right, right. That's you know, the, therein lies the invasion, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. We actually invaded London and invaded these musicians' lives when we, um, you know, did that. And uh, according to U.S. intelligence documents, you know, LSD was used to better manipulate people. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, they thought that once they were tripping, it was more easy to manipulate them. And so um, the first way John Lennon and George Harrison used LSD was uh, George Harrison's dentist invited them over for dinner and then put it in their coffee against without them knowing it. And so um, that how did you was find out? Excuse me, John. How did you find out about that? Yeah, Hotchner wrote about that in his is um, okay. Well, yeah, actually, I'm sorry. No, that that was different. That was uh, Cynthia Lennon 
and Patty Boyd. Patty Boyd was George Harrison's right. girlfriend. Cynthia Lennon, of course, is John Lennon's wife, first wife. They were there, away. and they gave, they gave eyewitness accounts of how that happened. Okay. And so for a dentist to do that, you know, to, to uh, risk his career to dose these high-level, you know, you know, these wealthy, you know, popular musicians is incredible. So he must have th- knew he had legal immunity to do that. George Harrison didn't even know what LSD was in 1965. He said, LSD, what is it? And John Lennon said, it's a drug. And John Lennon was really pissed off. Now, people around Lennon convinced him, oh, well, it's a party drug and it's fun. And, and you know, got him out of his uh, fury. But um, he, he was really upset about it at first. And... Um, People eventually convinced him to use it again, but um, it's a really strange phenomenon, and I, I show that this was likely in line with Lashbrook being there trying to get this you know, happening. And uh, so Mick Jagger, the first hit of acid he ever used, was from an F- undercover FBI agent named uh, Richard, uh, named David Schneiderman, or his, he also went by the alias Jove. Um, and it came out in the London Daily Mail, the London Daily Newspaper, that he was actually working undercover for the FBI. Now, um, A.E. Hotchner described the incident and described Marion Faithful's testimony that Mick Jagger had, was the last to try acid and didn't try acid until 1967, only when this undercover agent convinced him to. And after about a few hours after he tried the acid, uh, police came in and busted Jagger. And I argue, I show the evidence that the reason they did that is because Jagger was, him and um, Brian Jones were the most vocal against the Vietnam War, and so was John Lennon. It's interesting, though, in the the Rolling Stones, uh, Mm -hmm. that politics, I mean, it was not really reflected in their music. Well, they did have some songs that were that way, like Just a Shot Away, and, um, you know, certain other songs actually were, you know, did have some anti, anti-war statements. Right. Not overt, I, though. Not overt. I, I agree. I agree. They weren't as, uh, you know, outright as others. Because I think because I think they were scared. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason they were scared is because of these assaults, the constant police frame-ups. Uh, Mick Jagger actually filmed, caught a policeman on film planting drugs on him, you know. And so Brian Jones, when he sobered up, and uh, they had him under, you know, legal authorities' thumb because they had busted him a number of times for drugs. And so when the uh, they wouldn't give him a visa or passport to go on the, um, you know, uh, Rolling Stones tour of America in 1968. So the rest of the Stones. So he founded the Rolling Stones, Brian. Jones. Sure, he yes. was the best musician. Absolutely, so he could pick up. Re- he could. It was said he could pick up any instrument and master it in in days, even if he had well, no prior experience. Yeah, I hadn't heard that. That's wild. Yeah, so that's probably a good reason that um, Jimi Hendrix and John Lennon were such good friends with him. But so the rest of the Stones go on um, tour in America and temporarily split from from uh, you know Brian Jones. But Brian Jones calls Jimi Hendrix and John Lennon, according to Hotchner, and they uh, agree to to form a supergroup with him. Oh, really? And, that's fascinating. Yeah. I'd never heard that. Yeah, yeah, it's in Hotchner's book and. Um, and so um, after that happened, he had already been sobering up. Um, uh, a guy named Nick Fitzgerald, who was a member of the Guinness Beer family, um, was over Hotch- was over at Brian Jones's house, and Jones sent him to to town to pick up a friend. He comes back, and all of a sudden, there's a party at Jones's house. He can't get in the driveway. He walks around the back, and he sees three or four people drowning a man in Brian Jones' swimming pool. And a uh, guy jumps out of the bushes and says, get out of here, Fitzgerald, or you'll be next. 
And it took many years, but many years later, he wrote that that was Brian Jones, and I can't believe, you know, they killed my friend. And uh, him and other witnesses are quoted in Hotchner's book. But, um, you know, that's basically what happened to Jones once he was sobering up and was a threat, you know, to form the supergroup, and he was the most, you know, one of the most vocal against the Vietnam War. They did him in. Uh, John Potash, uh, my guest, Drugs as Weapons Against Us, the CIA's murderous targeting of SDS, that's Students for a Democratic Society, Panthers, the Black Panthers, uh, Jimi Hendrix, John Lennon, Kurt Cobain, Tupac, and other activists. Um, the, the timing um, of this, and we, we mentioned the British invasion, and I, just, I find it curious, of course, the Beatles come ashore, uh, appear on the Ed Sullivan Show in early 1964, just a few short months after uh, Kennedy's assassination. And after Kennedy's out of the way, of course, uh, the, um, the, uh, the war in, in Vietnam begins, begins to be ramped up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm wondering if, if that timing was, uh, was planned. In other words, if you want uh, you know, to, to, to sort of distract the American public from the, the, um, you know, the, uh, the Warren report or the, uh, the, the investigation into Kennedy, the, uh, the, the, the war in Vietnam that's coming up, what better way than to introduce sort of sex, drugs, and rock and roll into the culture? Yeah, I mean, that certainly could be possible, Rich, no doubt about it. But um, I, I just do have a chapter on JFK because of the fact that JFK and RFK were both vehemently against MKUltra. JFK fired Alan Dulles, the, the, uh, who was the lawyers for the Rockefellers before they became you know, director of the CIA and, and uh, secretary of state. And um, so Alan Dulles is fired, and um, McCone takes his place, and McCone close, closes down uh, MKUltra and JFK's orders. And RFK was busting all the um, mafia heads who were trafficking uh, cocaine, like the Marcello family down in New Orleans who were trafficking cocaine from Latin America. And the Trafficanti family in Chicago who were also involved with drug trafficking, along with the Genovese family who were involved in opium trafficking. And... Um, and so that, uh, plus the fact that JFK had said we we're, we're going to have no more troops in Vietnam as of as of the next year, he, um, um, he was pulling back from Vietnam, and uh, and Vietnam was the location of the Golden Triangle uh, for opium fields, for poppy fields, um, on that edge of China where the uh, the best you know opium was grown um, during the opium war war area, you know, against China. And so that area, area was so important, I argue, um, because of those poppy fields, because uh, Air America was trafficking the heroin from the, that area to the United States and other countries, according to John Stockwell, CIA station chief, who told me this in 1990. And he made public speeches about how he, you know, he was part of that Air America drug trafficking ring for the CIA. And uh, he true, said, sorry, John. Just true or false? Uh, cocaine was actually smuggled out of Southeast Asia into the United States no, inside opium, the yeah. coffins. Uh, opium, sorry, inside the yes, coffins okay. of dead U.S. servicemen. Yeah, that's been said again and again. And I think that's true. I mean, a number of people have talked about that. Yes, yeah. That they say that's one of the ways they did it. Sure. My word, it doesn't get any uh, more odious than that, does it? Yeah, and. So that's, you know, that's some of the reason I show for the evidence why they did in JFK and RFK for the same reason. Um, you know, of course, he was very against MKUltra, and they ran MKUltra behind their backs anyway. Richard Helms ran, had an uh, office behind uh, McCone's back, and then um, when RFK looked like he was going to win the presidency, 
um, they use the, the hypnotized Sirhan Sirhan to help in that operation to kill RFK, uh, sadly enough. Now, with the musicians, though, it was a, it was a different matter. I mean, they were obviously, um, you know, they appeared to be manipulated to popularize these drugs, such as LSD and heroin and other drugs. And, uh, but then when they sobered up and started getting more into activism, they were done away with. You know, that's the pattern, the, gen- the pattern you see with Jimi Hendrix, since uh, an MI6 you know, um, agent who said he left MI6, Mike Jeffrey, became inserted himself into Jimi Hendrix's life to be his manager, because uh, Hendrix first got big in, in Britain, not in the United States. That's right, yes. And, um, and so 48 hours uh, after you know, Hendrix fired Mike Jeffrey, um, Jeffrey admitted when he was drunk to a roadie who just came out with this in a memoir with the last few years. Tappy, Tappy Wright. Yeah, Tappy Wright. Tappy Wright, yeah. He has said that, you know, uh, Mike Jeffrey, you know, killed Jimi Hendrix. He admitted killing Jimi Hendrix. Now, how do you, you get a, you know, a bunch of killers to kill your musician in just 48 hours? You obviously have to be connected to U.S. intelligence. And I show all the evidence that he was connected, and I'm sorry, to British intelligence. But, um, you know, FBI had uh, Jimi Hendrix under regular super, you know, surveillance, too. The documents show that. But... <laughs> And, and how much of the uh, introduction of, of uh, opium and, and other drugs into the United States uh, had to do with, um, you know, the purposes for MKUltra, and how much of it had to do with just uh, sort of, uh, you know, creating this whole age of Aquarius, uh, psychedelia, as a way of controlling the population at large? Yes. Yeah, I think that was the purpose. The purpose was to control the population at large. Because youth was getting so much into civil rights activism, so much into anti-war activism, and uh, they wanted to do the opposite. You know, they, Timothy Leary admitted working for the CIA, and uh, but he had, was telling people to turn on, tune in, drop out, meaning drop out of activism, drop out of society, just at the time when, when so many youth were doing the opposite. They were getting into activism. And so that was what they were trying to do. But, of course, the opiates, you know... Um, we're just just hurting you know communities at large. Um, you know, people said it was scary to even to go outside and hang out on your porch anymore. And it's, you know, black neighborhoods got extremely scary because the opium seemed to be directed into black communities in general, but uh, it's communities of color. Um, but of course, it affected all communities eventually. And um, you know, it was, it was just uh, that's the way you can really destroy a community is, is get opium into that community, you know, heroin into the community, cocaine in that community in the 80s, and um, of course there was a resurgence of heroin with uh, in the 90s, and that that kind of sprang up according to John Stockwell because the CIA assets were creating a new uh, you know top area for for poppy fields, which was the Golden Crescent for uh, poppy fields uh, um, in around Afghanistan. And he said that start, Stockwell said that that started being um, cultivated in the late 70s and got bigger and bigger up until the, in 1990. And so um, that's at the other end of the exact same mountain range. The two ends of that mountain, same mountain range, one, one end is the Golden Triangle around Vietnam, the other end is the Golden Crescent in Afghanistan. 
and I show that the evidence that it's no coincidence that those are the areas of America's two, lo- two longest wars ever. There you go, John. I will take a time out. We'll come back and continue to delve into drugs as weapons against us, the CIA's murderous targeting of SDS, Panthers, Hendricks, Lennon, Cobain, Tupac, and other activists. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serra. We are back with John Potash, author of Drugs as Weapons Against Us. Uh, we were, I wanted to talk about um, uh, a little bit more about Air America, uh, going back uh, to uh, the Vietnam War. And, uh, you know, many, many uh, U.S. servicemen that, uh, that served in Vietnam came back as addicts. Uh, I mean, was the, were the, the drugs, the opium uh, and other drugs sort of doled out liberally uh, to, uh, to servicemen? Was, was that the idea, to get them... Uh, addicted even before they came home? I don't know. I don't know exactly how they uh, developed their addiction. I just know that Air America was flying in opium and heroin, right, you know, to the United States in a big way. But you're right, yeah, lots of uh, servicemen were, were getting opium over there in, in the Golden Triangle area, um, you know, in Vietnam and in the areas around Vietnam. But um, I don't know exactly how they got it to them and... Um, what they thought of that um but uh you know i know a lot of them started getting very politically active you know a lot of soldiers and were actually organizing against you know uh fighting and a lot of them were actually fragging um which is uh using fragment of kind of what they call it uh, fragment explosion devices throwing grenades into their superiors um barracks to blow them up throwing grenades into helicopters to blow them up and just sabotaging their own army's war, you know? Right, right. Uh, you, you alluded earlier to the crack cocaine uh, trade in Los Angeles and some of the mm-hmm. poorer neighborhoods there, African-American neighborhoods, Hispanic neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm, uh, I'm not sure, did, did you, did you uh, allude at all to, to Gary Webb and, and his... Yeah, I do. This is in the I San Jose Mercury News. Right. So talk a little bit about Gary Webb's investigative pieces for the San, ha- San Jose Mercury News in this area. Yeah, well, Webb basically just found the, you know, the Iran-Contra crack uh, you know, scandal, like researched that, researched Freeway Ricky Ross and, and his suppliers uh, amongst the Contras, how these, Contra, uh, these Contras who were organized by the CIA to fight the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, the Sandinistas were a socialist group that, that um, you know, that, that took over Nicaragua, and uh, the CIA was uh, was doing it kind of behind Congress's back. Congress ordered us to stop funding the Contras at one point, so they, they um, started raising money for the Contras by um, sell, helping them sell cocaine and giving them guns, and uh, they basically got very cheap cocaine into uh, a lot of, you know, dealers' hands and turned dealers like Freeway Ricky Ross into national suppliers. And um, and crack became the cheapest way to start developing a cocaine addiction. And so uh, they were getting these, uh, I, I show the evidence that they were actually not just using, you know, uh, these CIA assets and the Contras, but they were developing whole networks. And Gary Webb talks about that. He talks about how um, some of the operatives that were acting in J- in Jamaica to try to overthrow um, the Democratic Socialist um, Prime Minister, a guy named Manley, who was friendly with um, Bob Marley, um, they were trying to overthrow him. They were trying to you know, beat him in the election with a, a, a more right-wing candidate. 
and they had these um, these Jamaican gangs that were um, trying to uh, basically embezzle from Bob Marley, and then they ended up um, shooting him. Um, and some of the people that shot Bob Marley said they admitted they were paid by the CIA to do it. And um, was that Bob Marley or Peter Tosh? Because I know Peter Tosh was killed in a home invasion. Yeah, Tosh was killed in a home invasion, but but Marley was shot, as was his wife and his his manager. But he didn't die in that. Um, he was shot right before he was supposed to give a concert for um, you know called the Small Concert right before the election, and that concert was going to be considered a support of Manley, who was his friend and neighbor. And um, so when that happened, uh, Manley put him in an encampment. Uh, to try to you know make sure he saved him before the concert and and um, and then Marley uh, was visited by an undercover agent named um, David I think his name was David Colby it was basically uh, William Colby's son or I think his uh, it was basically the son of the CIA director had uh, had infiltrated um, a film crew according to uh, another member of the film crew named Lee Lou Lee and gave gift shoes to Bob Marley and uh, Bob Marley tried him one and got got uh, stuck by a pin in the bottom of the shoe and uh, just said, ow, but they didn't think anything of it. But then he uh, was playing soccer and that got, got that toe crushed, that had gotten pricked, and uh, they found that cancer had spread through his body and ended up killing him within a few years. All right, uh, um, John, we have to take another time out. We'll come sure. back and uh, delve into this fascinating, uh, nefarious chapter, ongoing chapter in uh, U.S. history. Drugs as weapons against us. Back with more. Stay with us. We're back with John Potash. Drugs as weapons against us. The CIA's murderous targeting of SDS, Panthers, Hendricks, Lennon, Cobain, Tupac, and other activists. Uh, John, give us a website, uh, and also, uh, how can we get the book? Sure. It's uh, www.johnpodash.com, and you can get the book through Amazon or you can get it at Barnes & Noble um, or Books A Million or independent bookstores. Did you have any trouble finding a publisher for this book? I mean, this is pretty incendiary stuff you're writing. Yeah. Um, well, it just so happened that the first uh, – I, I sent it to a few people, but the, one of the first, person, first people who saw it uh, was a publisher who says father had been a CIA agent and uh, warned him that his agency was drugging his whole generation in the 1960s. And so he said he was waiting for a book like mine, and so he was really glad to you know, see it and was really glad to publish it. So, so it seemed to be a good fit. It, it worked out with Trine Day Press, Trine Day Publishing. But um, so I was telling you, telling you about Jamaica, and the reason I was getting into that so much was the fact that those same, uh, the same Jamaican gangs that um, were part of the networks that were bringing in cocaine and heroin to, into Jamaica and that shot up Bob Marley, um, you know, though he didn't die then, uh, were then brought into uh, the east coast of the United States, both Miami and Brooklyn, and set up um, cocaine trafficking uh, routes up and down the east coast of the United States. Now, on the west coast, there was another, like, kind of... Um, a uh, group of people network. It was Freeway Ricky Ross who was getting his his cocaine very cheaply from these uh, CIA assets who were working with the Contras. Did he know and at the time I, that his paymasters, in fact, were CIA? Don't know. I don't know if he actually knew or not. He must have been uh, suspicious, though. He knows now. Hmm. Yeah, he does know now. That's for sure. He's speaking out about it, actually. Um, but underneath two, the two understudies, Gary Webb says uh, that Rick, Freeway Ricky Ross had two key understudies, and one was a guy named Michael Harry O. Harris, 
And the important thing about Michael Harry O'Harris is he started a record label with his uh, lawyer, his very well-connected mafia lawyer named Dave Kenner. And that record label was called Death Row Records. Now, that record mm-hmm. label ended up being uh, a record label that had dozens of police officers at all levels of it. And it was known to be uh, drug trafficking and gun running, according to investigators. And when one of those investigators, a guy named Russell Poole, a high-level white police detective, asked the superiors, what are all these my fellow officers doing over this record company? His superiors said, you can call them troubleshooters or or covert agents. And I showed the evidence that they had several missions besides just drug trafficking and gun running and trying to to, uh, stop the Bloods versus Crips peace truce uh, because the Bloods and Crips were calling peace truces and turning on to activism nationwide. Um, They also were were supposed to set up the murder of Tupac Shakur. And the reason being is because Tupac Shakur was only pretending to be a gangster in order to appeal to gangs and politicize them as part of his Black Panther extended families work at calling this, you know, getting this Bloods and Crips to call peace truces and turn on to activism. And uh, they were being very successful at it nationwide. And so... Uh, had, had, and had, they, had the Bloods and Crips uh, made peace, then the CIA, CIA would have lost their biggest distributor. Exactly, exactly. And so that, that was a major operation through Death Row Records. And, um, and it turns out, um, of course, they... They, they did have some success, but not, not enough before they, they closed shop because after they uh, killed Tupac Shakur, um, a lot started coming out about them and a lot was exposed. Now, Russell Poole had to resign to expose what he found about them because he, cause his superiors were shutting his investigation down. But, um, yeah, that was part of what was going on with that um, and part of the reason Tupac was killed is because he was costing the oligarchs you know billions of dollars because all these gangs stopping drug trafficking was costing a lot of money like all these you know banks you hear about they're getting fined for uh hundreds of billion you know the fact for the fact that they were um not they were money laundering um hundreds of billions of dollars um you know they were losing a lot a lot of money because most of the money laundered is drug money you know right right uh and um um, you met, we were talking about Gary Webb, uh, mm-hmm. who, who, who talked, who wrote about this in the San Jose Mercury News. Yeah, uh, and and of course we know that Gary ended up. Well, he was suicided. <laughs> uh, yeah. Officially, he was a victim of a, a suicide. But if you know, it, it's very suspicious. Twice in the head. Yeah, that's pretty difficult to do. Shoot yourself that's twice deep. in the head. The other the other person who who wrote and was very vocal about this was a former LAPD officer, and that was the, the late Michael Rupert. Um, yeah. And, and uh, he also uh, ended up uh, a suicide. Yeah, it was very sad. He died around the same time as a, as a guy who headed a group called the uh, Committee on Political Assassinations, a man named John Judge, who had, um, put, who had held several conferences that he, he featured me at um, in Howard University and University of District of Columbia Law School in uh, Dallas for the 50th anniversary of the JFK um, assassination. Yeah, he worked tirelessly along with um, a number of others uh, t- to get a lot of the uh, the JFK assassination, uh, uh, RFK assassination, and MLK assassination papers uh, released. Yeah. So it's yeah. very suspicious. Uh, you're right. Uh, 
all in all yep. three cases. Um, it's very sad that they both died in, around the same time. In terms of, of the influx of, of, of cocaine, uh, for example, coming into the United States, mm-hmm. um, a, a great deal has been written about the fact that that came through uh, Medina, Arkansas, a municipal yeah. airport in Medina, Arkansas, uh, during yeah, a I time... Think, I think it's actually Mina, Mina Arkansas. I'm sorry, Mina, Arkansas. Right. Uh, yeah. At a time when, when Bill Clinton was governor. Right. Yeah, they say you know, Bill Clinton was district attorney and then governor, and uh, there's just no way that, you know, lots of people say there's no way he didn't know that was happening. And that was probably, like, used, um, you know, basically to blackmail him. Like, if you get out of line, we're going to bring all this up. Because there was, yeah, there was loads of uh, cocaine coming through Mina. You know, it was a big operation there. Guns going to the Contras and, and drugs coming in through Mina, Mina, Arkansas. And they say that Little Rock had the second largest bond market in the United States and um, short of you know, New York City. And why? <laughs> you know, it's obvious it was drug-related. Interesting, interesting. And, and here he is. Uh, at the time, I, I remember uh, uh, Bill Clinton, governor of Arkansas, uh, making about $42,000 a year uh, and is completely nowhere on the political landscape. And then uh, before anyone has heard of him, ABC News was proclaiming him the front runner uh, for, for the Democratic nomination. Yeah, just came out of nowhere. It's very suspicious. John Potash, drugs as weapons against us. The CIA's murderous targeting of SDS, Panthers, Hendricks, Lennon, Cobain, Tupac, and other activists. Uh, So then, in in light of all of this, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, to call the uh, the war on drugs uh, hypocritical, I mean, is a vast understatement. Because uh, I mean, the the uh, the CIA runs on 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 the availability of drugs. Uh, the the yeah. the privatized prison system used to be Wackahut. Uh, they've changed their name, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, I mean, local sheriffs in these these small towns where the where the privately run penitentiary is the only industry are running around busy filling these prison cells uh, with with uh, drug users. Uh, in order to dry, drive up the stock price, because these are publicly traded companies. I mean, th- if yes, this is not the sign it. of a sick society, John, I don't know what is. I know there's a film recently called Kids for Cash that judges were getting kickbacks for sending more kids into these you know, juvenile detention centers and prisons. It's just so horrible. Kids were getting sent in and judges were getting kickbacks for, you know, just for like a, a fight, a schoolyard fight or something. It's really terrible, really ruining lives. And uh, so, yeah, I just showed the evidence that that drugs, you know, opposed, you know, it was the opposite of the war on drugs. It was drugs being used as a war on us, you know. And that's what's what's still taking place, sadly enough. I show the evidence that this is still going on. Some of the same, you know, people are, you know, even in 2001, a guy named William Picard was caught with, um, you know, the supplies for ten millions, tens of millions of hits of acid. And he and these articles on him had him have you know, government connections, connections to people that were um, in the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, which was Tim Leary's group with the Mellon Hitchcock family, which were U.S. intelligence connected. And um, here he is in 2001, the same, you know, involved with the same type of people. And then you got uh, CIA's front company was the Human Ecology Fund, and now you got a group called the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which is seeming to do the same things as the Human Ecology Fund was doing. Incredible amounts of money to try to promote acid. 
I, 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 I don't mean to jump around too much, but I do want to sure. go back to Lenin because we didn't talk about John Lennon. And uh, sure. I, w- I was, a, uh, you know, Lennon's death was sort of my my generation's Kennedy, I sure. think. Um, yeah, well, who doesn't love John Lennon? But um, there is a I don't know if you're familiar with uh, mm-hmm. Lennon's uh, visit to Toronto when he was touring with the Plastic Ono Band in, in 1969. And uh, his visit with um, media guru Marshall McLuhan. Uh, this was a very famous uh, meeting. It was kind of a private meeting. There were a few instructors in attendance. And um, um, McLuhan took the opportunity to let Lennon know, apparently, that he was a useful fool. Uh, and that, you know, the Beatles essentially were uh, uh, the equivalent of, I guess, a, 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 a psychological warfare experiment. Uh, for the express purpose of of popularizing psychedelic drugs, and well, I didn't know McLuhan said that. That's wild. I and didn't as, know he said that. As Lenin, as rumor has it, Lenin stormed out of this meeting, mm-hmm. uh, but came back a few hours later and sat with McLuhan again and wanted to learn more. And this sort of set Lenin on this. This is you know this could be apocryphal. The meeting took place, but uh, this is kind of hearsay as to what was said. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this set Lenin on this new trajectory. Uh, which may end up, may have ended up costing him his life. What what what, what is the motivation, you think, uh, for for Lenin's uh, death and and Mark David Chapman's role, Patsy, uh, uh, or actual you know programmed assassin? I think well, Fenton Bressler was a um, British attorney who was also a, a daily crime reporter, you know, a daily newspaper mm-hmm. in London's crime reporter. He spent about seven or eight years investigating John Lennon's you know, murder and found, concluded that in his book, uh, Who Killed John Lennon, that the CIA did you know, program or you know, hypnotize um, Dave Mark David Chapman, and they used one of their operatives, an Atlanta uh, police officer, as a handler for Mark David Chapman. Um, that Atlanta police officer um, trained Chapman in, in marksmanship. He gave him the hollow pulp point bullets with which he killed you know john lennon um he, he helped guide chapman to, to these different um cia front company kind of camps where they he kind of got him over to lebanon where he would be exposed to all kinds of violence and killing to help with you know train him to to do a killing while he was hypnotized and um so you know he shows up Bressler shows a lot of the evidence, as does a, um, a good writer named Strongman, a British writer who's written a number of great uh, music books. Um, he wrote a good book on John Lennon, just saying some of the same stuff. Um, Strongman only added to Bressler's uh, thesis that there was another marksman also there who was part of the kind of uh, uh, Cuban anti-Castro group. That Perdormo, was, yeah. Yeah, right. Suddenly becomes the doorman, unexpectedly, at the Dakota. Exactly, right, right. And so that they, they did in John Lennon because he had sobered up and he was turning on to activism again. He had two new albums out. He was going to supposed to be leading a march of workers who were, who were protesting, you know, for, for better rights. And, um, you know, so he was coming back into activism and uh, threatening to promote more sobriety and activism and things like that right when Reagan was coming into office. And, yeah, and they did him in because of that. John, uh, great pleasure. I wish we had more time. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll have you back on and discuss further because uh, we didn't even That'd scratch great, the surface. Uh, John Potash, Drugs as Weapons Against Us, the CIA's murderous targeting of SDS, Panthers, Hendrix, Lennon, Cobain, Tupac, and other activists. Definitely worth the read available at Amazon. Uh, thanks again, John. 
Thanks so much, Rich. It'd be great to come back anytime you'd like. Love to. All right, we are done. Back next week with a brand new program. Hope you'll be along for that. Bye for now. Good night. Take care, Rich. Good night. Bye-bye. Well, hey there, friends, and thanks for inviting me into your home. Your long-haul truck, your taxi cab, your RV camper, your cabin in the woods. Perhaps you're listening in live on our flagship station, AM740 Zoomer Radio. 50,000 watts of peace and love blasting at a Liberty Village here in Toronto. Or you may be listening in on one of our growing list of U.S. affiliates in Boston, Albuquerque, Lexington, Wichita, Chicago, Providence, and on and on it goes. Or you may be catching us on our podcast as you ride your motorcycle through the outback. Uh, The podcast, incidentally, available on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, ZoomerRadio.ca, TalkZone.com. However, and wherever you're listening to The Conspiracy Show, welcome, welcome, welcome. A paranormal investigator, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, joins us at the bottom of the hour. She's just returned home from a UFO conference near Joshua Tree National Forest. And uh, while there, she paid a visit to a very mysterious, remarkable structure in the middle of the Mojave Desert called the Integratron. Now, the Integratron was supposedly built by an alien contactee by the name of George Van Tassel back in the 1950s. And the Integratron is said to be capable of rejuvenation, anti-gravity, and time travel. Uh, so Rosemary Ellen Guiley will tell all uh, at the bottom of the hour. But first, the European Union appears to be on the cusp of destruction. It's really being tested right now, uh, this experiment. And you've no doubt been following the never-ending saga of Greece and uh, the back-and-forth negotiations with its creditors in an attempt to secure a third bailout package. Now, in January, uh, the Greeks elected an ultra-left-wing coalition led by Syriza. And uh, they went to Brussels, promising to secure Greece's place in the EU, return, retain rather the euro as its currency, secure much-needed loans, and put an end to these crushing austerity uh, pro- uh, programs imposed by the Troika that's resulted in uh, high, high, high unemployment, 25%, uh, 60% for youth, depression-like conditions, pensioners living below the poverty line. Uh, it's that bad. Uh, So Syriza uh, came back from Brussels with a proposal uh, that's really being pushed primarily by Germany's hardline finance minister, the crusty Wolfgang Schwabler, uh, that contained many of the same austerity measures that Syriza promised to uh, balk at and refuse. So they held a referendum in Greece and uh, people voted no by a margin of two to one. So, armed with a fresh mandate from the Greek people saying no to austerity, they went back to Brussels. And um, uh, on and on it goes. Uh, and now, of course, uh, Schwabel is taking an even harder line, saying that uh, Greece must even uh, adhere to, to greater austerity programs or they're going to be kicked out of the euro. So, uh, that leaves us where we're at right now. And Greg Pallast is uh, with us. He's a terrific investigative reporter based in New York, the author of some explosive books, including Vulture's Picnic, Billionaires and Ballot Bandits, The Best Democracy Money Can Buy, uh, and more. He's penned a new article focusing on the situation in Greece titled, Greased. We voted no to slavery, but yes to our chains. Greg Pallast, how are you? Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Glad to be with you again. You know, I uh, I get my news uh, from Greece from a couple of sources. You're one of them. Uh, Zero Hedge is another. Uh, yeah. Let me ask you right out of the shoot, though. Uh, I mean, I know why I care deeply about Greece. I've got a personal stake. 
why why do you write so passionately? Why do you care so much about this tiny country with such a, a tiny little GDP? Well, because they're they're running. It's like they're experimenting on a little bunny. <laughs> you, you have a bunch of mad economic scientists running a very cruel experiment. Like, well, let's see how much electricity they could they could handle. I mean, the Germans have a bad habit of that, and um, I think that it, it's. I think that it, we have to understand that we all get greased, uh, and we and you know you know the other as I've also explained by the way in uh, the article I wrote for Op-Ed News with by the way with uh, my Greek co-writer Michael Nevradakis who's uh, in Athens right now, uh, you know the difference between Greece and Spain is that both. In both cases, one in four people are unemployed. One in four. It's worse than the Great Depression of the United States. Yes. For the 30s, one in four people are, are unemployed. But we talk about the Greek crisis, not the Spanish crisis, because the only difference is, is that the Greeks are resisting. So what they mean by crisis is resistance. Right, right. Uh, in other words, there's a lot of people getting crushed by the euro, by their, by their getting captured by the eurozone. And that's Spain, that's Italy, that's Ireland. You know, that's Portugal, that's Greece, um, and Latvia, uh, for example, Lithuania. Uh, these are nations that have been crushed by, uh, uh, you know, getting sucked into the uh, into the Eurozone. And it's just that the Greeks have said uh, enough. They have enough history and pride to say um, uh, we're not going to take it anymore. Uh, we should point out the, uh, the article is called Greased. We voted no to slavery, but yes to our chains. And the vote, of course, referring to the... Uh, uh, the referendum uh, uh, about a week ago, uh, yes. in which they voted uh, by a, a margin of about two to one, the Greek people, to f- uh, no to this austerity package uh, in return for uh, a third bailout. Uh, of course, now the, the banks remain shuttered, and uh, Syriza Tsipras and his new finance minister, Varoufakis, uh, has resigned. Uh, they are back at the uh, negotiating table. Um, uh, what... What do you make of uh, Syriza's um, gambit here? I mean, are they – it seems odd if you look at the referendum question. First of all, that was very muddled. Uh, what do you yeah. make of, their, of their, their, uh, their gamesmanship here? Well, first of all, let's dismuddle the mud. Um, Syriza had uh, – Tsipras, who's the prime minister of Greece, uh, from the uh, kind of left-wing coalition called Syriza – uh, has uh, called a referendum, which upset the Eurozone because they forgot that Greece invented democracy and, and they forgot that Greece, Greeks are still kind of enchanted by the concept that people ought to vote on stuff. <laughs> so, they had a, so they had a referendum, but it was an odd referendum, as you would say, because they didn't say, okay, we either accept the kind of German-led package to stay in the Euro, and which means we have to cut pensions for the ninth time. We have to, you know, uh, go through this horror show. So you either accept the, the package from the Eurozone or we leave the Euro. Instead, the, the referendum said, should we accept the package? There's no, or we do this. There's just, do we accept the package or not? And in fact, Cyprus made the kind of odd claim that, the, uh, that Greece can vote no on the uh, kind of the torture regime uh, which Germany would impose. And and yet stay in and yet they could stay in the euro if they said no to the uh, to the kind of Reichsdiktat uh, of Germany, but still keep the the German currency. And the euro is a German currency. It's not there is no euro. It's just like there's no no one made Angela Merkel the president of the euro. And and even as Henry Kissinger once said, 
what is what does Europe mean? What is the U- European Union when when uh, there's a crisis? What's the phone number for Europe? You know, there's no, right. there's no Europe. There is no European Union. They're not united in any way. It's it's silly. And so it's, but Cyprus wanted to somehow get rid of, say no to the austerity and yes to, uh, uh, yes to stay in the euro. That's why it's called, you know, we voted no to slavery, but yes to our chains. The reason we put it in the, it's in the possessive is that my co-writer is, of course, in Athens and Greek. Right. Now, uh why do you uh, suppose Syriza is taking this this tact? Why don't they? Uh, I mean, is it because they've looked at the polls? Eighty-one percent of Greeks want to stay in. Uh, they want to stay in this currency umbrella in the euro. Have they decided that maybe they can they can sort of back into the situation and get out and into a Grexit? Or I mean, are they being disingenuous? Why are they taking this tact? It's a tough one to say. Um, I'd have to reach into the mind of a politician, which is not easy, but uh, generally politicians, as you say, read the polls. 81% of Greeks want to somehow stay in the euro because they've been brainwashed for years at, at this, this euro business. And I saw this in Spain where people are, are being you know, virtually horsewhipped by the German regime, and, and they're taking it. They're, it's a nation which has you know, given up. Basically, they've agreed that their whole lives will now be serving, uh, you know, uh, you know, get, serving uh, pina coladas to uh, beer barfing British tourists. You know that that they're that they're going back to third world status just to stay in the euro. And because there's because no one has actually discussed what the alternative is. Literally, Syriza has never laid out the case. Well, if we can't stay in the euro, here's what happens. They don't even have a plan. The Eurozone has a plan if Greece leaves the euro, but the, the Greeks themselves claim that they have zero plan for leaving the euro. They're not even prepared. They have, so no one's discussed what will happen, so it looks like, like you just you know, step off a cliff. That's not what would happen. I, I should mention that I'm an economist by training, and in fact, I was there at the birth of the euro. I, I knew uh, the father of the euro, Robert Mundell, professor at Columbia University, and and the people that worked with him at the University of Chicago, where I where I studied, and, and I spent a lot of time with talking with Mundell about the purpose of the euro, which he invented, and he was very straight. The purpose of the euro was uh, was just the other side of the coin, and that's a pun intended, of his other invention, which is supply side economics, the Reagan economics, you know, uh, of uh, the total uh, destruction of government. Unless, of course, you're rich, then then government's on your side. But as Reaganomics, or as, as uh, George Bush called it, the uh, senior, voodoo economics. You know, you can cut taxes and get more revenue, kind of magical thinking. But it was all about destroying the European welfare state, destroying unions in uh, in Europe. And when I say this, I don't say that I kind of in, inferred this from what he told me. He was very, very exact. The whole entire purpose of the euro was to eliminate the power of, Euro- of the unions and the welfare state and, and uh, government regulation and what uh, we call the safety net. And uh, that was his entire purpose of the euro. Now, how does that happen? A little euro economics 101. It's real simple. If you don't control your own currency... You don't have a country. You, well, no, you don't have your own budget. Because the, the budget is, uh, you know, you have to can't have more than three percent deficit, sixty percent borrowing. 
Uh, so you don't have it. You can't control your budget. You can't control your monetary policy by definition because it's not your money. You can't print more money if the, if you need liquidity. Right, which is what the U.S. is doing. Otherwise, right. they would be Greece. Right. So uh, exactly. So that you know, you can't. You don't have a fiscal policy. You can't raise or lower your interest rates. That's set by the uh, basically by the Germans. And you can't, you know, you can't like lower interest rates so that you can uh, survive a recession because you're not in charge of your interest rates. No fiscal policy, no monetary policy, no budgetary policy, and of course, no exchange rate policy because you don't have an exchange rate. You got the euro. You don't have a. So, for example, in a normal situation, it's real simple. If the Greeks still had the drachma, which was good enough for Plato, if the Greeks still had the drachma. Um, they could devalue the drachma against the euro or against the basically, which is the Deutschmark right. with stars on it. If you, you could take a devalue against Germany, but Germany couldn't handle that because if, if the Greeks devalued against Germany, they could undersell Germany. Right, and without the, and and without the, without the drachma inside this currency umbrella, the, the Deutschmark, they'd never, Germany would never be able to export because it, their, their currency is overvalued. Right, imagine... Uh, Germans competing against Italian lira, against French francs, against Spanish pesetas. All those currencies are gone. Everyone's stuck with the German currency, so no one can undercut. So, like, Italy can't undersell. Uh, you got a Mercedes, right, They're competing against, uh, um, against fiat, right? And so the Italians can't reduce the price of a fiat against the Mercedes because they're stuck with the German coin. Yeah, it's a good deal for Germany. Listen, uh, Greg, got to take a time out. We'll come back, and uh, I want you to dispel some myths about uh, Greece, the Greek worker, uh, yeah. and also uh, insolvency, and who is the greatest debt transgressor of the 20th century. This, pe this will be uh, surprising to many people, I'm sure. Greg Pallast, uh, journalist, investigative journalist, and uh, author, best New York Times best-selling author, back with more right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. We are back with Greg Pallast, and uh, we should mention uh, that your book, Greg, Vulture's Picnic in Pursuit of uh, Petroleum, Pigs, Power Pirates, and High Finance Carnivores, that's uh, soon to be translated into Greek, is it not? That's right. It's my, I am actually somewhat influential in, uh, in uh, Greek economic journalism, and uh, because I've been studying the, the, the vultures, and Vultures Picnic is my book, um, is uh, the, these vulture financiers, mostly based in the U.S. and in Germany and Switzerland, uh, they have been attacking Greece, one of the reasons why Greece has been in trouble. Actually, it's a good story for you. Kenneth, one of the, the main vulture financiers who's been attacking Greece and sucking the blood of the Greek people, that is, I mean, by charging serious interest rates and taking tons of money from them, is a guy named Kenneth Dart. Now, you might think of him as an American because he lives in Florida, but that would be, uh, you could get sued for saying he's an American. He was born in America, lives in America, grew up in America, and made billions of dollars in America selling styrofoam cups. But he became a vulture financier, earned billions more through his uh, uh, financial depredations. And he gave up his U.S. citizenship, became, took Belize citizenship, and there's no uh, record that he's ever even been to Belize, but he became the U.S. ambassador from Belize to the United States. So he lives, still lives in the United States, but as a Belize, not as an American anymore, but as a Belize citizen who doesn't have to pay U.S. taxes, and he's got diplomatic immunity to do whatever he wants to do within his, uh, his compound in, uh, in Florida. And uh, so he's diplomatically immune, tax immune, 
and, uh, you know, gave up his U.S. citizenship. A great patriot. Yeah, right. right. Well, let's... And then <laughs> he went after the Greeks, and, and so he yeah. made... When, when Greece was on its back, and everyone else, uh, all the uh, other big banks even, agreed to cut some of the debt, uh, uh, Greece's debt burden, he said no. He not only... He bought up Greek debt for pennies on the dollar, mm-hmm. old Greek debt for pennies on the dollar, and then said, no, I don't want... I don't want just face value. I don't want a thousand percent profit. That's for chumps. I'm not taking a thousand percent profit. I want a couple thousand percent profit. I want you to pay more than the face value of these bonds. When everyone else is taking 20%, I want 200%. And he got it because he said, if you don't give it to me, he's like a terrorist in a helicopter, you know, saying, I pulled the pin out of a grenade. I'm going to declare Greece in default, and the entire European banking system is going to go down the tubes. This is the type, these are the type of people that are taking control of the Greek economy. Uh, they are kind of financial terrorists. And I don't use that term lightly, just so you know. I don't use it lightly at all. Uh, and, um, you know, these are, these are not savory people. Even the banksters are afraid of them. Um, and, but this is what's happening. But on the other hand, the, the regular banksters have not been too nice either. Uh, just Keep in mind, for example, you know, the, the, they, we keep talking about the Greeks being given money for a bailout. The Greeks have gotten nothing. The bailout has been for the German banks like Deutsche Bank, the number one recipient of, of aid of the so-called Greek bailout, has been Deutsche Bank. So Germany's been printing money for its own banks. It's been bailing out the United Bank of Switzerland, Deutsche Bank, Credit Lyonnais of France, and, and other uh, Big European banks and Citibank and J.P. Morgan, okay, and Goldman Sachs have all gotten a big, big piece. So the bail, bail out the bail in money goes into the the Greek central bank and then immediately out into the central banks of Europe. They don't even trust the Greeks to do that. They they pay those banks directly. The Greeks have never seen that money that they now owe. And so these big banks are paid off. They charge enormous. Usurious interest rates, 10, 12, 14 percent interest, insane interest rates. Right. And now they're getting paid off. They get paid off, and then they're giving the bill to the Greek people. And you asked me to dispel a myth about the Greek people. One thing that's going on here is a tremendous amount of racism. Oh, my Lord, it's terrible. Yeah. And so they talk about these lazy Greeks, you know, yes. it's like olive pits spitting, ouzo swilling. Lazy Greeks who retire when they're 31 years old and, um, you know, get fat pension checks and never work more than three hours a week. Let me, let me correct the record right now. Thank you. And again, I'm not Greek. I don't have a dog in this. I'm, I'm not German. I'm not Greek. I don't have a dog in this, in this fight. It's simple. The Greek people, those who have work, work more hours than any other nation in the developed world. More hours per week. Now, how do I know that? If you go to the OECD website. Now, the OECD is the official organization of the developed nations of the world, 30 developed nations in the world from, you know, Japan, U.S., Germany, etc., and Greece. Greeks work more hours than anyone on this planet. They get up in the morning, and they're growing their tomatoes so they can eat. Then they go to work at their job in the shipyards, and then they go work in a restaurant to serve Germans, who, by the way, Germans work the fewest hours of any worker in the developed world. The lazy, so it's the Germans who work the fewest hours, calling the Greeks lazy who work the most hours. And the, the Greeks, they say, oh, they have fat pensions. They've had their pensions cut eight times. Eighty percent of pensioners are now living below the poverty line. 
below the poverty line. And for the first time since World War II, you have starvation in Greece, half a million undernourished children. Um, it is it is devastating. It's sick. And at least they're, they're resisting. But again, the problem is that, you know, they're afraid because they've been told by their leaders of both the left and the right and the, you know, the elite, we can't leave the euro. So people are panicked. They're saying, no, we can't, we can't take it anymore. We can't, this so-called austerity, that's a, it's a nonsense word. It's punishment. They call it austerity. Or, or the new latest word is reform. What do you mean by reform? They're not getting their pensions aren't too big. People are suffering. They're going to have a eighty six. They're going to retire at sixty seven. That's when their social security kicks in. They've like I say, it's been cut massively. So as you say, eighty. There is and by the way, that's the problem with Europe. There is no Europe in the United States of America and in Canada. You have uh, national health. Well, you have in Canada. You have national health insurance. You don't have national health insurance in Europe. You have each little nation. So Greece is Greece cannot buy medicine now. They don't have the in, they don't have the hard currency literally to buy medicine. People are literally suffering. They're literally dying. This is no joke because there's no because they cannot the nation cannot afford to bring in medicine. So there's no Europe. Let's let's there's dispel no it. national pension. There's no, no. Europe pension. Well, it's there's no. There's no Europe, nothing. It's a con. If it was really the United States of Europe, let's look at the, uh, the United States of America, for example, and mm-hmm. a, a state like South Carolina. Uh, I mean, you have, we have them in Canada, too, transfer payments, where a state gives tax, they receive more in tax revenue from the federal coffers than they give out. That's a transfer payment, because they're a, we call them have-not provinces or a have-not state. They receive money. If it was a true federation, uh, you would be pouring, you know, tax uh, payers would, uh, there'd be a redistribution. More money would come into Greece than is going out. Uh, and, and that's, you know, that's how a federation often operates. You have poor regions, you have richer regions. Uh, well, but if they wouldn't crush, if they wouldn't crush Greece, uh, it would, it would not be a poor region. Greece is actually has, has, well, first of all, the number one thing, by the way, that Greece has, and you're right, we don't, and that's the whole point. I mean, Obama, for example, uh, well, just for example, I mentioned that you have no budget control if you're in the euro, if you're the nation of Greece or any nation. Okay, only only the Germans control the whole thing. You wonder why the Germans? Because they it, basically the euro was created by Germany as as a kind of uber Deutschmark. And so what's happened is is that um, when we went into recession in the U.S. and when Canada went into recession, both nations went into deep debt, which you have to do. You have to stimulate the economy with debt. And then, so the U.S. went into, remember, in Europe, you can't have more than 3% debt. The U.S. went into 11% debt. Now the U.S. is back to less than 3% debt, but we had to go into deficit spending. Right. And, but you can't do that. The Greeks are not allowed to, to have deficit spending. It's insane. No, they're and choking so, a dying patient. Uh, let's dispel yeah. another myth. And this is, uh, people need to understand this too. After the Second World War, uh, even before the Second World War, uh, Germany had huge, massive uh, debts. Uh, and in, the, in 1953, the, about 20 countries got together, many of them, which had been rampaged by, by Germany during the Second World War, forgave most of their debt. That's right. The number one debt transgressor of the 20th century, they went insolvent not once, not twice, but three times, was Germany. Yeah, and not only that, by the way, I would note that while Germany imposes 3% 
deficit rule on everyone else. They've been the biggest cheaters. They don't have a 3% deficit. They're lying. They, they've been conning. They've been doing a complete con on the um, on the uh, uh, their deficit. Hmm. How did how is it that Greece ended up under this umbrella umbrella this currency umbrella? How did they end up in the in the EU? Well, there are two things that happened. First of all, there's an elite which is very excited about the euro. Remember when I talk, we tend to talk about things like it's German occupation, economic occupation of Greece. What we really mean is the 1%. The average German not, is not getting anything out of, out of Greece, out of this stuff. They get a little bit of benefit, so they, they like this regime. But, you know, it's just like the, the World War II occupation of Greece didn't do much for the, uh, for the average German either, right? No. And so the, it's, it's about an elite in, in all these European nations, which are thrilled to take part in the plunder. For example, you can't have more than 60% debt, so they privatize, they sell off everything in Greece. If it's not nailed to the wall, and even, and even if it is, the wall sold to, the beaches have been sold off, the docks sold to the Chinese, the, uh, the islands, you know, public parks sold off, the water systems, the electric systems, you name it, post office, it doesn't matter, it's all on the chopping block, and of course, these are the financiers who set the fire, and then they buy up everything cheap in the fire sale. Mm. And so the local elite is more than happy to buy up uh, Greece's properties, uh, the, basically buy up the national treasures cheap. So the, the local elite is part of the plunder. They're not suffering at all. There's an elite in Greece which is doing very well, and they're not taxed. And by the way, now here's something you'll really love, it, and it really illustrates that it's not about Germany versus Greece in the end. It's really about the 1% versus the 99% of Europe. And that is um, the, the European uh, Central Bank demanded that Greece raise, that the Greek government raise so much money through budget cuts and taxes. So the Cyprus government, the progressive government said, okay, uh, we will raise business taxes because businesses pay nothing in Greece. The big businesses, like you know, the, the big shipping firms, right. pay next to nothing in Greece, if, if anything at all. Nothing on foreign earnings. It's in their constitution. Yeah, and so they don't pay money. The, 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 Greek, the big Greek shipping magnets they, uh, have a free ride. So they said, let's start taxing these characters. And the, this is the interesting thing. The, the Troika, the, the big financial conglomerate, including the European Central Bank and the European Commission, IMF, said no. In other words, they said, okay, in other words, the issue is not whether Greece will pay, but whether Greece will tax the rich. And, and they said, no, you can't, you can't tax business. You know, the old thing, oh, it'll drive business away. And, uh, you know, you can't, God forbid, you tax the Greek wealth. God forbid you tax the big Greek shipping magnets and, and the, the big industries. Well, that's that entirely you can't do. No, that's entirely true. Let's let's face it. In or out of the euro, Greece needs to reform its its uh, a political culture. Uh, there is corruption. Yeah. They need to right size their their public sector. You know, they need to find efficiencies, it, it, uh, regardless uh, of what path they choose. Uh, just about out of time here, uh, uh, Greg. But I'm wondering whether uh, uh, the the troika is going to attempt now to string Greece along for the next couple of weeks without giving them a deal in order to accomplish what the referendum couldn't, and that is a regime change, so that they can get another party, another election, someone that's willing to play ball uh, and get down on their knees again before the Troika. 
Oh, I don't have any doubt about that. That that uh, what they're trying to do is basically they're unhappy with the concept of democracy anywhere in the eurozone. If you don't get the 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 government that the that the uh, European Central Bank and the IMF want, uh, you're you're uh, being targeted for regime change. Okay, last question, and we just got about uh, ten seconds here. Uh, uh, look into your crystal ball. Uh, do you, Greece uh, out of the uh, EU and back on the drachma before the year's end? I don't know. I hate to because I always hate to speculate. I only investigate. I don't speculate. Uh, what I will what I will say is that I would hope that the Greek people come to their senses and realize that that they've had a proud and long successful history with the drachma, and that they don't need to be subservient to this wacky concept of a euro. Because I got to tell you right now, there's this whole idea. Oh, we have to be in Europe. Greece will not crack off at the Albanian border and, and crash into <laughs> Africa if you leave the Eurozone. This is a nutty concept. The world, you know, you don't leave Europe because you stop using Germany's coins. That's true. My, my eight-year-old said, he said um, to his mother, he says, Mommy, if, if Greece gets kicked out of the Euro or out of Europe, where will they go? Asia? Yeah, right, exactly. Greg, uh, always a pleasure. Uh, we should point out the website is gregpalast.com, and it's P-A-L-A-S-T, and also the Palast Investigative Fund Store. Let's help make billionaires and ballot bandits a movie. Yeah. We're making a movie, and we're going to pull the pants down on these, uh, on, on the, those who are sucking the blood of Greece. All right, Greg, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay. Oopa. GregPallast.com. Rosemary Ellen Guiley up next. Stay with us. Here once again, our paranormal investigator, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. She joins us once a month, and uh, she, the author of over 60 books on the paranormal, the supernatural, the metaphysical, many of the major encyclopedic works. Always a pleasure to have Rosemary with us. Hey, Rosemary, how are you? I'm doing well, Richard. I just got back from an amazing trip to California where I had some incredible experiences out in the desert. The Mojave Desert. You know, I have a, I hold a distinction. I remember taking a road trip through the Mojave Desert. Uh, I believe I was on my way to, to uh, Las Vegas. And um, I had left Canada in uh, the cold of winter. I was probably the only person in the Mojave Desert. We had a flat tire. I got out. I was wearing thermal underwear. True story. <laughs> <laughs> However. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> uh, you, uh, you indeed had an interesting uh, journey. Now, you were at the, um, uh, the Joshua Tree. There's a big conference uh, there every year. Yes, I spoke at Contact in the Desert. They had over 2,000 people. And uh, an amazing event. It was the third annual event uh, at a Buddhist meditation retreat center there. So um, it's uh, an outdoor facility, and some of the events do take place outdoors. And then uh, they have separate buildings uh, where they uh, schedule lectures. They had uh, speakers from all over the world, people from all over the world. And the retreat center sits on a very powerful vortex. In fact, that whole area around there, uh, Joshua Tree, and there's a, a huge uh, federal park there, the Joshua Tree National, right, National right. Park, has been renowned for a long time for sightings of mysterious craft and lights in the sky and uh, meetings with aliens. So uh, when people come out for contact in the desert, they mean it literally. Sure. And, and then uh, just down the road from there, in Landers, California, again, right in the Mojave Desert, 
we have this rather bizarre uh, looking structure. It's a wooden dome. Tell me about the Integratron. It truly is amazing. It looks like a small observatory. And it was built in the 1950s on instructions from aliens, from beings from the planet Venus, uh, to be a time machine and a rejuvenation chamber to rejuvenate the cells of the human body. So it's got an incredible history to it. And what's even more amazing is that it, it's open to the public and you can experience it today. Uh, the history of it uh, actually goes back to Native American times. The whole area was considered to be um, sacred ground and uh, a meeting place for um, spirits uh, back um, when settlers first came into the area. And um, it's a very stark landscape out, out in the desert. I'll say. And, uh, not too far from the Integratron is the world's largest boulder, and it's called Giant Rock and this was very sacred to the Native Americans. Well, the man behind the Integratron, his name was George Van Tassel. He was an aerospace engineer, and he had some experiences out there at Giant Rock that launched him uh, on this incredible career of being almost like an ambassador for the aliens. He had um, many contact experiences. He channeled uh, beings. He was one of the principal early uh, contactees and channelers for Ashtar, the Ashtar Command. And um, he's the one who got the instructions to build this Integratron. Right. And he had space, uh, um, sort of spacecraft conventions of his own out there. Now, was that before he built the dome or, or uh, after? Well, it, it came along concurrently with the instructions to build this. Um, the history of it, the brief history of it, is that the land had been homesteaded. Uh, by a man uh, named Charlie Resch, and um, after he died, uh, a squatter who was a prospector moved in, um, and his name was Frank Kritzer. And uh, Frank hollowed out a chamber underneath the giant rock and lived in it. <laughs> uh, and it's just like living in a cave, you know. It was uh, cool in the in the summer and warm in the winter. So when people said to him, where have you been living? Under a rock? He could actually Under a say, rock, yeah. literally. <laughs> Listen, Rosemary, I've got to take a time out. We'll come back. We'll talk about the amazing structure in the, in the Mojave Desert, the Integratron, what goes on there. Rosemary's recent visit. We'll talk about Van Tassel and much more right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. From Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Coming up on the next Gold Hog Fights Back. When community councils in Toronto and East York voted to reduce speed limits on local roads, Gil Penalosa cheered. He's an advocate for healthy communities, and he'll be here to talk about his designs for parks and streets, focusing on people, not on traffic flow. Goldhawk fights back for you. 11 to 1. Get involved daily on Zoomer Radio. Morning coffee. A park bench. A well-deserved nap. And Sunday Showcase with Marie Siegel. Here's to the thought of doing all the things you didn't get to on Saturday and changing your mind. Listen to Sunday Showcase with Murray Siegel. 11 a.m. to noon on the new AM740. Keeping you informed, entertained, and reclined. 
How would you like to have customized professional business cards that are unique to your business and that give you the confidence you need for every new business opportunity without needing any design experience? With Vistaprint, you can. Because Vistaprint makes it so simple for business owners and business dreamers to get the customized tools they need to help their business thrive. Right now, Vistaprint is offering 500 high-quality professional business cards for just $9.99. That's right, 500 customized, colorful ways to make a name for you and your business. At Vistaprint, you can choose from hundreds of designs or upload your own for a truly unique, personalized business card. Vistaprint absolutely guarantees you'll be satisfied with your business cards. That way, you'll feel proud and confident that the business card you hand out will stand out and make a positive, lasting impression on your customers. But hurry, this offer won't last long. To get 500 professional business cards for just $9.99, go to vistaprint.ca today and enter promo code 1166 at checkout. That's vistaprint.ca, promo code 116. Hi there. I need business phone service that sounds great. Tired of the monkey business? Easy Office Phone is serious when it comes to business communications. Custom built for your needs, Easy Office Phone provides optimized voice quality to guarantee you make yourself heard. For a limited time, get the first month of phone service and three months of video conferencing free when you purchase select Polycom phones. Get started today at easyofficephone.com. That's easyofficephone.com. No more monkey business. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Her website is visionaryliving.com. She joins us at this time every month, and we're talking about this remarkable uh, wooden dome structure built in the early 1950s in the Mojave Desert. It's called the Integratron. Uh, Van Tassel uh, uh, built it, and it's located on a, uh, an important vortex uh, that has, I guess it dates back in legend all the way to uh, sort of pre-Columbian times. Now, give us uh, a little bit more of a physical description. How high, how big? It's, uh, it's about 55, 56 feet in diameter. And uh, like I said, it looks like a, a small observatory. It's white. It's made out of uh, wood and metal. Not a single nail in it. And uh, it is acoustically perfect. If you stand in the center of the dome uh, and speak, your voice will reverberate throughout the entire structure. And uh, so what people do today is uh, they have sound baths there. And uh, the principle is that because of the acoustics of this chamber, um, the reverberation of the sound and certain kinds of sound have a regenerative effect on human cells. And uh, the, the sound is generated by crystal bowls. A set of crystal bowls is played, and then uh, uh, that sound reverberates around the chamber. And then uh, after that is done, then people um, relax and kind of, uh, you know, uh, get themselves together with meditation music. And I've done the Integratron twice. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an absolutely amazing experience. Uh, you feel like you're going out of your body. People have a very... Uh, pronounced out-of-body projections. Um, The sound waves are so strong that uh, if you look up at the dome inside this structure, uh, it looks like the the wood of the dome is fluid, and you can see, uh, like, uh, impressions of of what look like spirit bodies impressed uh, upon the wood. And uh, it is profoundly relaxing. But the time travel aspect of it, that's 
seems to have unfortunately been lost. Now, uh, George Van Tassel met this uh, prospector, Frank, right, uh, and got invited out there. And uh, Frank was uh, accused of being a spy uh, during World War II, and uh, some authorities came out to arrest him. They threw a tear gas uh, thing into his chamber that he'd hollowed out under the rock, and unfortunately it ignited the dynamite that he had stored there because oh, it was dear. a prospector. So no more and Frank was, Kritzer. And he was killed. Sure. Uh, so Tassel was able then to um, take over the property. It's gov- it was government land, but he applied for um, permission to live there and move into uh, this place, and he set up an airstrip, a very small airstrip. Well, in 1953, uh, he was holding meditation groups to contact aliens. And in 1953, he was awakened uh, one night by um, a man standing at the foot of his bed, and a craft had come down on the airstrip, and uh, there were four beings in it who said they were from Venus, and they took him aboard the ship and gave him the secrets of this uh, Integratron and told him how to build it. Uh, And he spent the next 18 years doing it. He raised the money through his um, UFO conventions. He attracted thousands of people out to the desert. And um, all the money was donated. And he was going to be the first person to experience the Integratron when, mysteriously, several weeks before its completion, he died of a heart attack. Of course, conspiracy theorists say, Hmm. Very strange that he supposedly had this advanced technology, which was all in his head. It wasn't in paper. Right, right. No paper documents. He sounds like a modern-day Noah, except getting instructions to build the ark from God. He's getting instructions to build this life extension uh, technology from aliens. Well, in fact, he likened it to the tabernacle of Moses. And he said also that some of these ideas had come from uh, Tesla. And uh, so uh, he even went on TV and uh, gave interviews that he had tested out the time-traveling aspects of um, uh, this uh, structure and that he said uh, an event only is real if we think about it, and so this whole process used thought. Uh, that was an important part of it, and that he, had, he and his team had been able to go back in time and record earlier television broadcasts, and uh, he said the oldest one was about six years old. But all of that technology mysteriously vanished with the death of Van Tassel, and uh, uh, so the the structure sat empty for quite some time, and his widow eventually sold it to a couple, and then uh, it was passed on to three sisters who own it now, and they've reopened it to the public and um, have... Um, used it as a, a place for these sound baths for people to regenerate. And whether or not there's any mysterious regeneration, uh, nobody can make the claim for that. It is profoundly relaxing, and it does um, function on the principle that certain vibrations of sound have restorative effects on the body. Oh, I, I certainly believe body. that. I, I certainly believe that. I believe that frequencies, well, that's what Ro- Royal Raymond Rife was on about, certainly. And uh, we're, we're beginning to rediscover that. But uh, how much of this... A phenomenon, and, and we can talk a little bit about the various phenomena uh, that maybe that you've experienced there, but how much of it has to do with the actual structure and how much has to do with its placement over this vortex? Vortex. I mean, this energy, uh, this electromagnetic energy is, is measurable, is it not? 
Uh, well, it's measurable um, in dowsing and uh, according to the principles of ley lines, and um, I, ha- I have not seen any uh, magnetometer readings of it. I would think that if um, someone brought out a magnetometer, they might be able to at least uh, map out the magnetic anomalies of the place. But you're very sensitive. I mean, when you walk into that building, do you feel different, like walking into a crop circle, for example? It does feel uh, Different. The whole landscape there feels what I would say different, uh, and people do get physically affected by going out there and also out to Giant Rock. Many people will get kind of lightheaded, uh, have altered states. Uh, I this last time when I was out, I went with uh, uh, my husband and I went with four other friends, and uh, we went out to Giant Rock first. There's a huge uh, hill called Crystal Mountain that's uh, just covered with. Uh, rock crystals, nice quartz crystals, and we wanted to, to get some to take into the chamber. And while I was out there, I began to feel uh, just um, like I was tuning in to some other kind of reality. And I heard a voice in my head that said, George Van Tassel is here. Uh, and uh, I just had this feeling that something of his presence was going to be very palpable during the sound experience that we were going to have. And uh, one of the other um, members of our party is a filmmaker from Los Angeles, Paul Davids. Oh, I know and, Paul. Yes, he's been on the program. Um, uh, he had um, done some research on uh, Van Tassel and um, had also been out to the Integratron. And at, at the end of our experience, he spontaneously did some channeling uh, of uh, Van Tassel uh, without me ever saying that I felt that Van Tassel was going to be present. Oh, he's and, not interesting through a, a series of synchronistic events, um, was contacted by one of Van Tassel's nephew, uh, nephews uh, to, uh, to do a film project on uh, Van Tassel. So it, it was just a very strange set of circumstances. Um, I did go out of body um, my very first uh, time there. I had a um, projection out of body in my husband. Uh, who had his eyes open, and uh, I had mine closed at the time, but he had his open, and he even saw me uh, get up. And he thought I was actually getting up, when in fact uh, I never moved. Uh, You lay on a mat on the floor. He saw your astral body. He saw my astral body. Uh, now I've only met your, I've only met uh, Joe once, uh, um, and I I don't recall. Is he? Uh, I mean, he seems like a pretty like straight shooter, like not a like a real no nonsense guy. He's a he's a techie. Yeah, he's he's a computer geek, and uh, he's very interested in all of these topics uh, that I work in. He has his uh, his own psychic sensitivities. Oh, too. he does. Okay. Uh, so, um, nonetheless, that was quite a dramatic uh, experience to actually see that visually. Oh, bad. So I really am convinced that there is something to the energy of the place. Now, another experience that we had, uh, it wasn't uh, there at the Integratron, but it was back in the desert cities where we were staying. Uh, One night I was out sky watching, and I saw a craft in the sky. It was a a gray uh, oval-shaped, silent-moving form in the sky, and I could not tell how big it was because I couldn't tell how high up it was. And uh, it just was in the sky for a few seconds, and, and then it vanished. But it wasn't a star. It wasn't an airplane. Uh, in, and I've seen the satellites moving through the, the sky. They're very faint and tiny. And uh, this was much larger than, than any star. 
So uh, there are all kinds of strange things that go on out in the desert all the time. Oh, yes. I, I, I really want to get out to Joshua Tree for no other reason. I don't know if you were ever a fan of Graham Parsons. Uh, do you know the, the story of Graham Parsons? Well, yes, I do. And uh, as a matter of fact, in December, uh, we, we got together with another couple, uh, and we stayed at the Joshua Tree Motel, and Joe and I stayed in the room where Graham Parsons died. Oh, And wow. we did a seance. Oh, you did? That's amazing. And uh, we did not contact Graham Parsons, and uh, there were uh, quite a few communicators who came through, and in fact, one of them told us that Graham Parsons wasn't there. He was way too busy in the afterlife. Uh, but there were other spirits who were attracted to the place because of him, including musicians. And there, uh, people have had lots of phenomena happen in that room. And uh, we had, uh, one of the things that we experienced was, um, you know, the bed shaking um, and, uh, you know, odd sounds, uh, you know, on the walls and things like that. So... Um, now, Parsons, you know, he had such an interesting history, too. He would go out to Joshua Tree uh, National Park before it was a federal park. You could go out there uh, uh, at night any time. And he would sky watch, uh, and he was convinced that he had seen uh, UFOs on, on many occasions. Interesting. And, and uh, just for those who are not familiar, uh, Graham Parsons, who, of course, was, uh, you know, played with Crosby, as, uh, he played with the birds and... Uh, uh, um, uh, had his own band, I believe. Uh, but but he when he died, um, was it Phil Kaufman uh, stole his body from the funeral parlor because uh, he was going to be buried. But but Parsons had always let it be known he wanted to be cremated at Joshua Tree. They stole his body and actually and doused his body in gasoline at the foot of the Joshua Tree and or somewhere in the park and tried to set him ablaze. And uh, uh, it's, a, it's an amazing chapter. It's a story that's so crazy, uh, you couldn't even make it up. No, indeed. Uh, but yes, he had made the offhand remark. He was a rock musician. Uh, his, his last band, uh, The Fallen Angels, yes. uh, Emmy Lou Harris was part of that. And um, one of the things we did while we were doing the seance is we, we played um, his last album, uh, Grievous Angel, uh-huh. uh, over and over again to, to you know, build up the atmosphere. But yes, Phil Kaufman and another friend... Uh, they actually stole his body. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had died of a uh, drug overdose and uh, drugs and alcohol, and uh, they stole his body from the airport, from LAX airport. Uh, his stepfather was trying to get the body shipped uh, to where he lived in Louisiana, hoping that it would bolster his uh, claim to uh, Parsons' money. Right. And uh, they, they got a hearse with no license plates, um, and uh, they were dressed in their rock musician outfits, went down to the airport, convinced the airline employees that they were from the funeral home and the family had had a last-minute change of heart. Yeah, I got Rosemary, I'm out of time. I'm so sorry. But it's we, a crazy story. We know the end. Yeah, they tried to cremate him at Joshua Tree. Thank you so much for this, and we'll talk to you next time. Okay, thank you, Richard. Bye-bye. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, VisionaryLiving.com. That's it for us. Thanks to uh, Tim Spreen, Albert Vinzel, Moses Neimer, of course, Chris Whitting and the team at Syndication Networks. Back next week, James Robert Wright on the Illuminati Mythos and time travel whistleblower Andrew Basagio of Project Pegasus. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden 
that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.